At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible. With a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are recording. We have online Dr. Robert Perkins, psychophysiologist, professor, CISD instructor, and police chaplain, also the author of a, a textbook on chaplaincy. Dr. Robert Perkins, thank you so much for being on Operation Tango Romeo today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You betcha. Well, what... Uh, We've got a lot to cover, <laughs> but uh, we generally keep these down to 20, 30 minutes because um, uh, I keep I keep it bite-sized. So Operation Tango Romeo is a trauma recovery podcast. And uh, so glad to have you on because I want to talk about critical incident stress debriefing a little bit, uh, being that you sure. are the expert on that. So um, as a preventative measure, measure for PTSD, uh, how effective is it? Um, studies will show, you have to understand that um, the measuring stick for the success of a critical incident stress debriefing is not necessarily whether the person develops post-traumatic stress disorder or not, but rather that the uh, trauma that they've been experienced, um, it mitigates the physiological and the psychological effects of that trauma and it keeps them from repressing it. But studies have shown that when a CISD is done um, in the proper time frame by a properly trained individual, uh, the success rate is between about 80 to 85 percent that that person will not uh, develop either operational stress injury or post-traumatic stress disorder. So it truly is an ounce of uh, prevention is a pound of cure. Absolutely. And, and if you look at the sort of the complexity um, of treating post-traumatic stress disorder after someone has been diagnosed with it, uh, something that is a relatively uh, simple protocol that can be done by lay people, they don't necessarily have to be mental health professionals, um, it is the most practical thing that emergency services uh, can do in sort of mitigating the huge amount of effects of trauma on their employees. So get it early and avoid the long-term costs. Absolutely. Now, how has this evolved over the years? Uh, back in my day, I'm not that old, but old enough, um, I did a combat tour in 1994 in the former Yugoslavia. And we had a few instances, but there was uh, only one that warranted I mean, there should have been more, but uh, there was one where we had the chaplain sitting down with us and doing the critical incident, uh, that version at the time of, in 1994 of a critical incident stress debriefing. And um, how has it changed from then to now? Well, it's changed dramatically. Um, critical incident stress debriefing was something that was pioneered in the early 70s. Um, by a person by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell is a uh, clinical psychologist and professor, but he was also a volunteer fireman. 
and and he noticed um, the effect of trauma on the people that he was working with in the fire department, and he came up with this protocol. It was really first utilized by uh, military, uh, primarily in the United States, and then slowly it began to transverse into non-military applications, into emergency services, into hospitals and police departments. Um, the early model, what it did was it had an outside party, um, usually a mental health professional uh, that was uh, sort of taken under contract that whenever a police department would have a traumatic incident, uh, they would schedule a debriefing and they would bring this sort of outside person in to conduct the debriefing. Now, within the last decade, uh, Dr. Mitchell has seen that the debriefings are actually much more effective um, if the facilitator is actually part of the actual peer group. And so instead of contracting now out uh, for these services, what police departments are doing is they're taking frontline people, uh, generally up to the rank of sergeant. Uh, they're also including uh, people from dispatch, and they're training them as critical incident stress debriefers. And they've found that when the person that's facilitating the debriefer is actually part of the homogenous group, that it is extremely more effective. So is that what they call uh, cultural competency? Uh, that's that, that's another word that you could use to describe it. That's correct. The, the problem is is that especially within um, the police department, that there exists a subculture. And you're either in or you're out, and we talk about there's this sort of blue wall. And if you're not in that circle, um, there's not generally a level of trust. So mm -hmm. when you bring an outsider um, into a room full of police officers and you're asking them to uh, describe uh, things that they felt and things that they were thinking, there is less likely that they're going to be as transparent as they were if the facilitator uh, wasn't a member of their peer group. And so that they've found that this is a much more effective way of doing it. I see this in the veteran community as well. When you're trying to get into the OSI program, uh, Operational Stress Injury Program, uh, they are so backlogged that they, uh, the best that they can do as a stopgap uh, bandage is put you into the um, uh, sort of a, oh God, I'm trying to think of the, um, there's a program they put you in, it's 10 weeks, so you go once a week for 10 weeks, uh, stabilization series, that's what it's called. And it's run not by other veterans uh, or police officers who speak a very similar language. I find we tend to get along really quite quite well with each other. Um, but sure, absolutely. For the, this uh, stabilization series, is done by the uh, clinicians. And that's enough right. to pop a lot of the guys right out of the room. They just... Uh, it is. They're, they're, they, they can't listen to because it. Because there's been such limited success by uh, both uh, mental health professionals and your standard uh, physicians in the treatment of post-traumatic stress, um, there is a hesitancy. And many people, um, the most common practice uh, besides uh, prescribing pharmaceuticals is, uh, you know, behavioral and cognitive behavioral therapy. And a lot of times uh, the therapist is going to ask them to recount this event several times. And so they're taking these people back to one of the most unproductive moments in their life. And, and the fear of having to do that and feel these physiological and psychological and emotional uh, aspects coming out in their body is enough for them to, to not want to either attend the, the program to begin with or to continue if they've had one session or two. And I can understand that completely. The um, I've been in therapy for three 
years. And depending on the topic that uh, we're going to be picking at, uh, mine is a Tuesday morning. But just the anticipation, even though my mind feels like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, but my body knows. And uh, my uh, the physical things that start happening to me the day before are unbelievable. Uh, my digestive system, uh, headache, tension, the joints in my body, uh, my whole being hurts and my, uh, my mind is right whacked out, uh, not, not able to, to, to think clearly the day before. And depending on the topic that we were dealing with, I can be fried for two or three days after. It's, uh, it's really yeah. tough. And, and then you add into that that the success rate of that form of therapy is extremely low. So in the United States, I believe the average uh, military veteran that participates in a traditional PTSD uh, treatment, um, the people that actually go from start to finish is around 15%. So wow. it's a very low, low rate of people that continue because they don't find it effective and they find it more traumatizing than if they weren't getting the help. We have seen good results and I'd like you to uh, speak to it, although out of your giant resume, uh, you can let me know how much this is in your scope. Um, as you and I were tra- chatting earlier, I run a peer support group and Correct. I do a lot of what's called psych ed, which I found um, in a book of dialectical behavior therapy uh, is doing the same thing, which is self-directed. It can be done by the lay person like myself. And uh, we've been finding anecdotally, uh, we're, we're finding progress, but I'm told when I took my peer support course that there's clinical evidence that peer support is also helpful. I was wondering if you could chime in on that. Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, if you really look at the the intelligent design um, of, of the human, um, and whether or not your um, belief system um, puts that as God as the creator or the creator, our bodies were designed in a way um, to be very utilitarian, uh, both in physical injury and in mental injury. And so we were designed in such a way that we are able to recuperate uh, from these things that we're exposed to from traumatic incidents without the need of ingesting pharmaceutical drugs or, or, or these other things. And so what you've been describing in psychoeducation, uh, psychoeducation, in my experience, is probably the most dynamic and most uh, successful way of treating uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And there is a, a new uh, model of treatment. It's called uh, cognitive meditation therapy or cognitive meditation technique. And what it does is it teaches people um, What's very common from people that have experienced every treatment known to mankind for PTSD is the success that they feel when they attend a yoga session. And they'll say, you know, you know, I have terrible symptoms of PTSD, but when I go to yoga, when I'm there, I don't have those symptoms. And usually for an hour or so afterwards, I don't, but they, but they do come back. And so what we do is we teach people what it is that when they're in yoga and they're practicing what's known as a breathing-based practice, how that physiologically 
uh, changes sort of their the dynamics of of their own body, and we teach them how to make that a cognitive process of the mind that allows them to utilize that without having to be in a yoga environment. And that particular uh, mode of therapy has a 98% success rate in eliminating the physiological symptoms of PTSD for life. Now, how much yoga are we talking about before it's uh it sticks permanently? Well, first of all, it doesn't Im- it doesn't involve yoga at all. Okay. And the uh, the treatment modality takes about two and a half hours long, and it's one time. And the great thing about this is it does not require the person to recount the traumatic in- the, the traumatic incident. What it's doing is it's teaching them how their body works, and it's teaching them what's actually producing these physiological symptoms that we're associating with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's not so much as um, the, the event that's caused them to happen, but it's something that they are doing and they may not be conscious of it in how they're breathing and how they're tensing their muscles. And so we explain to them what causes these sensations. And when you know what it is that's causing them, then you know to do the opposite uh, that will eliminate them. But this is science. So science, when it's done properly, works 100% of the time. And so we're, we're teaching people the science of the physiology of the human body. So we're so what type of meditation should somebody be looking at and or breathing exercises? What resources uh, could somebody listening go to for the um, uh, the right breathing exercises, the right meditations that would be effective? Uh, well, this is something that is being uh, taught at the uh, College of Certified Psychophysiologists in uh, Anaheim, California. Uh, their website is uh, www.c cp.college. And um, this is something that is slowly now being integrated into um, uh, mental health practitioners. Now, you have to, if you say, this is, sounds like such a great treatment, why haven't I heard about it? Why isn't it being done by everyone? Well, the bottom line is, is that if you're able to, uh, to treat someone in one 2.5-hour session, that um, it doesn't make a lot of money for the people that are practicing it. And if you look at the billions of dollars that is represented in PTSD medication with big pharma and everything else, there's really no incentive for people to cure um, people's ailments quickly, at least cer- certainly in the United States. Um, it's, it's, but it's much the same in Canada. Big pharma has a big stake in uh, the treatment of many things, PTSD being one of them. And so it's been kind of an uphill battle in explaining to people that um, this is something that is relatively simple. You don't have to be a mental health practitioner. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to have a high level of education to understand the basic physiology of the human body. Going back to your other question in respect to meditation, it has nothing to do with meditation. Um, People experience this in yoga because when you're doing yoga or when you're practicing uh, meditation, you are doing something that is a breathing-based practice. And so you are basically changing the rate and the way that you are breathing that you would normally do sort of outside of that environment. So what we do is we teach exactly what happens when you do apply that, and we give enough information that the brain can sort of incorporate this into what we call a cognitive behavior. Now, in order to get the brain to uh, make something a cognitive behavior, 
there's a process that's involved. So first of all, the brain has to understand what the basic concept of what we're talking about is. And then it needs all of the backstory. You just can't say, so many times we hear, just breathe, just breathe. But we never really go into explaining why. What is it that happens when we breathe? And so in order for something to be implanted and become a cognitive process, it has to have all of this backstory. Once it has the backstory, it will begin to to test this. It will, it will put situations where it will apply this. And then at some point in time, it will become an automatic cognitive process. Now, uh, how does somebody access, say, in Canada? Uh, I think I, mean, I have listeners from around the world, literally. Um, but how does somebody access this type of therapy? Um, well, there's a uh, we do a lot of work with a nonprofit that's called the Restored Heroes. Um, that can be reached at restoredheroes.com. And by simply reaching out, uh, sending an email or going on the website and uh, asking for a little bit more information on how this works, uh, someone would be very happy uh, to direct them in the proper way where they could uh, learn this process, learn more, learn more about it. Now, do you have to be a psychophysiologist? Do you need a doctor to be able to, to uh, teach these techniques? Absolutely not. In fact, uh, in the critical incident stress debriefing uh, certification, when we're teaching people how to be debriefers, um, there is the uh, a very small amount of this science that's actually utilized, and, and we're training these people in how the human body works and how to explain to people that are suffering from specifically physiological symptoms that they find overwhelming, um, how they're going to be able to overcome them. So it's something that is a layperson can learn. Um, is not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. And are you growing in a cadre of instructors to to scale this? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, at this point in time, the uh, CMT, as it's called, is um, the certification is being taught through the College of Certified Psychophysiologists, but it's something that can be done via distance learning. Uh, we do Zoom classes to uh, people all over the world, uh, teaching them this technique. And the uh, the author and pioneer of this particular technique is a woman by the name of Dr. Veronica Maxwell. Um, she will be um, doing sort of one-on-one uh, in a large sort of class um, all around North America and Canada, uh, bringing people together both that, that sort of need the treatment as well as those who want to help other people by being able to utilize this treatment. So... Where is how widespread is this treatment now? Like, uh, say for Canada, Southern Alberta, where where I'm at, uh, if I wanted to, well, it's 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 not very widespread at all. Yeah, and the reason that it's not very widespread is that it took a long time um, to get this out there. There are a lot of people where um, when you take away the people that need it, people that are providing alternative. Uh, measures of therapy that, again, are revenue generating. They have a lot to lose uh, when something like this comes and becomes sort of mainstream. So it's been an extremely uphill battle um, to get that treatment out there. All you need to do is talk to people that have had the treatment and that are sort of physiological uh, symptom-free from their PTSD, which when that happens, that allows uh, mental health practitioners to be able to deal with the non-physiological symptoms of PTSD and the emotional issues that a lot of times when the physical symptoms are so great, they won't go for that help because they, they know that the minute they walk in the door, they're going to feel overwhelmed. 
in general, from uh, the experience in the peer support group that I help run and being in the veteran community, it seems that the longer you go without treatment or diagnosis for myself, it was 22 years before I was diagnosed. The longer you go, uh, the more difficult it is to treat. Is that uh, still true with um, uh, the method that you're using? Absolutely. I, I like to compare um, exposure to trauma like borrowing money from the bank. So there's a cost to the human body, both to the physical body and to the, the mental part. Um, when you're exposed to trauma, there's a cost associated. So if I borrow $1,000 today and I pay it back at the end of the week, there's my $1,000 principal and then a small amount of interest. The longer that we go um, without dealing with that issue, you've accumulated a lot of interest. And so whether it's a month, whether it's a year, five years, 10 years, when it comes time to pay, you're dealing with such a larger problem that's manifested itself. And as well, if you're in emergency services, likely you've accumulated other traumatic incidents uh, that will compound that initial one that initially gave, uh, gave you problems to begin with. Now, do you believe in the idea of the trauma cup? What, um, or some people uh, say the, the trauma bucket that uh, whether it's childhood or occupational, anything that's uh, happened that's uh, traumatic in your life, that it, it is all cumulative. And then once it gets to a certain point, it's, uh, the trauma cup is too full. That's when you start seeing symptoms like anger and, and outbursts and inability to properly regulate emotions. Uh, do you believe that it's all one one hundred percent? One hundred percent. When I teach about uh, PTSD and psychophysiology, um, I do use that sort of uh, analogy, but I'll also make it like a computer hard drive. And so, if you have a computer hard drive, it's only capable of holding so much data. And when that hard drive gets full, just like a normal computer, it crashes. And and I refer to that hard drive as sort of the mechanism that the human body has to deal with stress. And so when that hard drive crashes, the human body does not have, it's not equipped with another process. And so it's it, trauma affects people so many different ways. And that's why when someone's hard drive crashes, some people get physiologically sick, some people get depressed, and all of the symptoms are different, but absolutely. And so what critical incident stress debriefing does is it dumps that bucket. It doesn't empty it, but it gives you enough of a buffer to be able to deal with sort of the day-to-day stresses that we have, um, as well as being able, if you're a first responder, and dealing with major traumatic events. In the world of uh, peer support, which seems to be effective, and for some people, it's all that they have. They can't afford therapy. Um, It's the only outlet that they have. And what are some of the reasons that you believe peer support is an effective uh, tool in uh, PTSD recovery? Well, first of all, um, when you have someone that you trust and that when you have someone that's likely um, sort of being exposed to the same sort of environment uh, that you're exposed to, um, there's an automatic understanding that this person is going to sort of get the story that um, that you're you're sharing with them, number one. Uh, number two, timing is everything. In order for a, a critical incident stress to briefing, to have maximum effect, it has to be done within 24 to 72 hours. And so when you're dealing with peer support, um, the likelihood 
that that debriefing can be performed within those 24 to 72 hours is much higher than if you were contracting that out to sort of an, an outside agency. And so the combination of both and just the general sort of familiarity of having someone either who I know or who at least is a member of the same organization that I have, uh, that I'm that I'm in, uh, will have a much higher uh, success rate as far as the person being open and honest and, and sharing uh, how they're thinking and how they're feeling in their sort of process of dealing with the trauma. If you could, and I'm uh, sorry I didn't prepare you for this question, but um as best as you can, what would you say are the top two or three do's and don'ts of peer support? Hmm. Um, well, first of all, I believe that uh, if you just have a genuine interest and you want to help peers, but you don't uh, sort of pursue any training, uh, can be extremely dangerous. So I think there has to be a, a basic level of peer training. Um, it doesn't have to be uh, mental health training per se, but the number one um, successful peer support element would be critical incident stress debriefing, especially uh, in dealing with uh, traumatic stress. And I think that you have to have a plan. So if you're putting together a peer support program and it's, it's something that you've never done before, then I think what you want to do is you want to reach out to another organization that already has a plan and already has a, a template because it can be extremely dangerous if someone with very limited knowledge on how peer support works um, puts together a plan without sort of any um, real help. Um, they will, will mean well, but they may miss some very, very uh, crucial key elements that uh, needs to be in place for a proper peer support program to work. Are there any good, because uh, I've been looking, uh, I'm creating some, some standards for it, but uh, do you have any resources that you know of that already set out some really good standards for peer support? Uh, yes, I do. The Ontario uh, Mental Health uh, Association has one. And an organization that I work with, the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation, um, one of the things that they'll do is uh, for especially police departments, fire departments that don't have a peer support agency, is they will come in and, and they will provide them that sort of uh, consulting that's required to put that program together for them from start to finish and also including in that uh, the training and certification of uh, critical incident stress debriefing. All right. Well, I, uh, I'm definitely going <laughs> to be trying to access as much material as I possibly can, and I'll, I'll talk with you off air here um, of how I can get my mitts on that, because uh, I'm trying to <laughs> develop um, the book that I'm started to write is uh, two parts. Part one is how to be a good peer supporter, one-on-one, -on -one, and uh, part two is uh, how to be a good peer support facilitator. Because as you've already said, and I'm so glad that you did, it's an extremely dangerous role. You can do harm so easily because it's, it's um, I mean, you're not a psychologist by any stretch, but you're in that vulnerable position where if you don't do it right, you can do more harm than good. No, very well put. All right. Well, Dr. Robert Perkins, thank you so much for being on Operation Tango Romeo today. Uh, super valuable episode. I appreciate this very much. And if you could just stay online while I shut her down. You are listening. All right. It was to, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Uh -huh.
At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible. With a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. 